Hi there, Gary Camilla. Right now we're standing under the signature building of the San Francisco skyline, the Transamerica building. This pyramid is the postcard San Francisco. It's right up there with the cable cars and the Golden Gate Bridge. Everybody knows it. When it was first built, most San Franciscans hated it. Now we kind of like it. Actually, I didn't appreciate the skyscrapers of San Francisco until I got a convertible. You gotta take the lid off to really see them. So tilt your head up and look up at the top of the pyramid. That point is 107 feet higher than the top of the Golden Gate Bridge. And that's enough of the postcard city. I want to show you a San Francisco that's a lot less obvious. Turn your back to the pyramid and walk toward the big intersection. We're going to head straight up the street that runs directly into where we're standing, Columbus Avenue. Let's go. There's a beautiful gray building with black columns to the right. Yeah, it's that Scientology building. We're going to pass it to our right and continue up Columbus. So cross Washington, then to that little island with a tree on it, then cross again and head up Columbus. The pyramid behind us is urban kitsch. I'm gonna take you to the places you wouldn't know to go. I've been wandering the streets of this town ever since I moved here more than 40 years ago. But it was only a few years ago that I started walking it obsessively. I would choose a different neighborhood every morning and wander through it. I was trying to learn every street, hill, beach, trail, vacant lot, burned out building, and obscure byway in town. I was doing what London taxi drivers call the knowledge for San Francisco, but on foot. So I'd look at, say, this stone Scientology building we're passing to the right, then I'd go to the library and read everything I could about it, or I'd walk into it and ask the people who work there. It turns out this building was one of the early branches of a little bank founded by a big-hearted Italian San Franciscan. After the earthquake and fire of 1906, he set up his office on the waterfront, a plank on top of barrels. He was the only bank open. That bank is now the Bank of America. All right, cross this next street here and keep going up Columbus, past that public parking garage up ahead. When I started walking this city, I was researching my book, Cool Gray City of Love. But what really drove those countless early morning excursions wasn't a search for material. It was the joy of exploration itself, the desire to make the place I live deeper and stranger, to find the doors into an enchanted world. And what I discovered is that every corner of this city, no matter how rundown or monotonous, has a unique story to tell. No novel is as rich and strange as a single downtown intersection. Keep walking. So here's what I want to do with you right now, right here in the middle of all this everyday hustle and bustle of this big city. I want to take you back through 25,000 years of San Francisco history in a little more than 25 blocks. We're gonna do it more or less in order from the Ice Age to the present, with a few digressions along the way. 
And by the way, around the time we get to the 20th century, we'll stop at a great deli. You're not going to go hungry. So stop at the corner up here, in front of this yellow brick building you'd probably never look twice at, and take a look around you. We're going to start 25,000 years ago, right here in this bog. The mud your shoes are sticking to. Okay, I know a bog is not what you're seeing. But as we go back in time, I'm going to need you to use all the power of your imagination. Look at the shiny cars, the people, the traffic lights, the mishmash of city buildings. Now walk around this corner, all the way to the other side of this nondescript brick building, across from the cafe over there called the Station on Pacific. Find the bronze letters that say Pansini Building. They're tacked under the bricks above the sidewalk, and they're a bit hidden by the tree branches. Just find the letters and stand under them. Now, close your eyes. Imagine that all of this is gone. There's no building, there are no cars, no streets, no people. Imagine a muddy pool at the edge of a hill on a gray, overcast day. Keep that image in your mind because when you open your eyes, I want you to stay there. Okay, open them. It's 25,000 years ago. The city is gone. Where the yellow brick building was is now a muddy pond. It's very quiet, but in the distance, you hear some curious thuds. Now the ground begins to shake. Look toward the rumbling, down the street we're on, away from the busy intersection. And they appear, three Colombian mammoths running toward us at full speed. Their tusks are 15 feet long. Look up to the second story of the Pansini building, that's how tall they are. So don't just stand there, hide, right here by the little grove of trees. Okay, by the brick wall right next to us. Peek down Pacific, and you see two insanely powerful bears. The mammoths are actually running away from something. The bears are instantly upon them, ripping at their exposed bellies, yanking out their entrails before they're even dead. Okay, brush yourself off and come on out of the grove of trees. I promise the rest of our walk through history won't be so gory. As we move forward in time, we're also going to move upward through space. We're going to climb from the shadowy depths of Chinatown to the sublime heights of Telegraph Hill. But this tour is about much more than views. Before we leave the mammoth's bloody remains, walk under the Pansini building sign a little ways into this echoey entrance. If it's gated, just get as close as you can. Now look down. Somewhere under the ground, maybe right under our feet, is where the bones of those mammoths were discovered. Construction workers discovered their remains here when this building was going up, and that's how we know about these mammoths. 
Okay, we're going to walk now along the sidewalk that's under the Pansini sign and toward the big intersection next to us. That's Columbus Avenue. Head over to face the traffic on Columbus. But as you look out at the stretch of concrete that's there now, imagine the landscape the mammoths knew. Steep, barren hills in every direction. All sand and scrub brush. It's not a very hospitable place for humans. Now, we're going to jump forward 12,000 years. Look around at the people on the street. Imagine them naked and armed with spears. If you need help, look at the image on your phone. 12,000 years ago, that's when the first humans make an appearance here. They were nomads from Siberia. They're known as Paleo-Indians, and they hunted here. They may even have hunted mammoths, if they were desperate enough. Before we cross Columbus, take one more look at all the layers of human history and industry that have been grafted onto San Francisco's barren hills since those Paleo-Indians first passed through. San Francisco has always been a city of extremes. It's the last stop at the end of the continent, a place where rebels, dreamers, and drifters have piled up like tumbleweed against a fence at the edge of the ocean. For centuries, people have come here, whether for sustenance, to escape, or to reinvent themselves, for better and sometimes for worse. This city's history is both inspiring and appalling. All right, so you're facing a busy intersection. Look left, and you'll spot Café Zoetrope. It's on the other side of Columbus Avenue. You see it there? It's that café in the copper-green building with a big red awning. Go ahead and cross Columbus toward the café. We're going to continue on Kearney Street, passing the café on our left. While we walk, we're going to meet the first people who actually settled here on this peninsula and they settled for a very long time. That's the next layer of history we'll explore, the long, unchanging era of the Yalamu. Keep walking down this street. It's Kearney. Past the cafe in the copper-green Sentinel building on your left. So, the mammoths were 25,000 years ago. The Paleo-Indians 12,000 years ago. Now they're both long gone. It's 5,000 years ago, and a group of native people called the Yalamu are settling on this peninsula. Why? Because of something brand new and wonderful, the San Francisco Bay. When the glaciers of the Ice Age melted, torrents of water poured onto what had been a vast grassy plain. Across the street we're coming up to, it's Jackson. You'll cross first to the corner with the yellow brick building. And then take a right. You're going to cross to the other side of the street we've been walking on. So you'll end up caddy corner from where we started. So cross all the way to the corner over there with the red brick building and the black window frames. And when you get there, stop walking and turn around to look downhill all the way down past that yellow building we just went by, toward the bay. You see the tower of the bay bridge? It's sticking up above the trees and buildings there. There was no water beneath that bridge until the glaciers melted. 
Well, when the glaciers finally melted and salt water poured into that basin out there, you could start wading into the bay just two blocks away from where we're standing right now. And that's what brought the Alamo to this peninsula. Okay, now we're going to keep walking along the street we've been on. It's Kearney. The red brick building with the black window frames is on your right. Walk past those trees and towards that pedestrian bridge you can see further down the street. Consider the impact of the bay. The bay brought food to San Francisco. Oysters, clams, mussels, fish, birds, and small game. And all that food brought people. Where we're walking now was once a sandy Indian footpath leading to and from the water. The Yalamu arrived about 5,000 years ago and stayed all the way until the Spanish arrived, just 300 years ago. They lived here an incredibly long time, but there were never many of them. Look at the tallest skyscraper down this street, the reddish-brown Bank of America building. You remember the bank that started out as a wooden plank on a barrel? Fewer people than work on one floor of that building were scattered across all of San Francisco. Now, when you get to the next intersection, Washington, you're going to cross the street and go up the little stairs. You may see a lot of action in the square we're about to visit. I'll fill you in. So up the staircase and... Welcome to Portsmouth Square. This is one of the few spots in the city whose present is just as weird and wonderful as its past. Stick around here in this corner of the park before we move on. If it's the right time of day, you'll see games of Chinese chess down here. It's okay to walk around, just peer over people's shoulders. The board is drawn right onto some of the stone benches. And yeah, money is illegally changing hands, unless someone like you starts looking too closely. San Francisco's Chinatown is an amazing, dense, squalid, magnificent neighborhood. It's the second most densely populated neighborhood in the United States, and this little square is its living room. So take a seat right over there by that trellis, if you can find a spot, and I'll tell you more. We're going to jump forward in time for a minute, and we'll come back to the Alamu. The Chinatown you see here today started during the gold rush in 1849, when large numbers of Chinese arrived from Canton, seeking their fortunes. That's when this area became a city unto itself, a kind of ghetto. That's partly because the Chinese preferred to associate with other Chinese, Many regarded Americans as barbarians and planned to return to China after they got rich. Some even arranged for their bones to be shipped home after they died. But it's also a ghetto because bigoted whites wanted to confine the Chinese to one congested neighborhood. Over the decades since, the Chinese have become integrated into the city, but they've also maintained the parallel universe you see here. Look at the people in this square. Listen to the language of the chess players. Check out the fake-slash-genuine Chinese architecture on the rooftops around. This current incarnation of Portsmouth Square, it's fascinating enough. But scratch below that surface, and you'll unearth signs of practically every chapter in San Francisco's wild history. 
Okay, back to our story. Let's erase Chinatown from our minds and go back to the Alamu. Their peaceful, incredibly long existence was doomed when the Spanish arrived. The Spanish laid claim to the west coast of North America in 1542, but it actually took them 200 more years to find San Francisco Bay. They kept sailing up and down the California coast without ever catching sight of the bay's foggy entrance. Well, you can't blame them. Look at your phone to see how invisible it can be. And there was, of course, no bridge tower poking through the fog to give it away. So stand up, stretch your limbs, and let's head to the upper level of Portsmouth Square. First, look for that pedestrian overpass again, then walk under it. You'll see some potentially crowded stairs going up to the right after the overpass. Those are the ones you want. The ones on the right. Don't be shy if it's busy here. Go on up the stairs to the right. If there are card players here, just weave your way through to the upper level of the square. Pass right through the games. Now, what they're playing here is Chinese poker, or 13-card poker. You get 13 cards, and you have to make three good hands out of them. Say, a flush, a straight, and two pairs. Every hand you lose, you're down 50 cents. When you're through the crowd, with your back to the stairs... Look toward your right. See that white flagpole across the square there, the one to your right? It may not have any flag on it, just a white pole. Walk in that direction, and then, past the flagpole, over to the other side of the little patch of grass the flagpole is in. You're going to wait next to the granite plaque sticking up out of the far side of that grassy patch. Okay. You've walked past the flagpole to find the little granite plaque at the other end of the grassy patch. We'll get to the plaque in a minute. In this part of the square, there are probably more card players. Take all of this in, and then forget about it, because we're going to go back in time again. From where you're standing, turn to face that uphill street next to us and imagine Spanish soldiers stumbling down a Yalamu trail. The trail followed that street over to your right. It went all the way from the Spaniards' fort down to the bay. This was the late 1700s, and the soldiers were surely sweating in the heavy leather jackets they wore to protect against arrows. They were called leather soldiers, and they had come here to defend Spain's territory and try to turn the Indians into Catholics. And that mission ended in tragedy when most of the Indians died of disease or misery. And then the Spanish Empire collapsed, and in the 1820s, Mexico won its independence from Spain, and it took over this worthless, sandy peninsula in the middle of nowhere. But Mexico only owned this land for 25 years before the United States grabbed it. The granite slab sticking up next to this grassy spot here, that marks the place the Americans first hoisted their flag in 1846 after conquering California in the Mexican-American War. So, 
This land went from the Yalamu to Spain to Mexico to the U.S. within a single century. But the important thing to know is that up until the very last moment, this place was nothing but a flea-bitten, forgotten outpost. The only people living here besides the Indians were a handful of bedraggled, unpaid soldiers and a few missionaries. It didn't even make any difference to them who owned this land. In fact, it was during the last few years of Mexican rule that a runaway sailor rode up, right here where we're standing, and put up the very first building on this land. So let's go meet the very first white man to make his home on this part of the peninsula. His name was William Richardson, and he's known as the Father of San Francisco. We're going to walk over to the street the leather soldiers came down. It's the one that leads up the hill deeper into Chinatown. We're going to cross that street, it's Washington, to stand near the red awning with the Chinese characters in yellow. Just go down the short flight of stairs towards the street and look for cars and bikes before carefully crossing. Once you've crossed the street and you're by the red Chinatown awning, stop and look uphill toward the next cross street. That street up there, Grant, is where an English sailor named William Richardson built the very first house in this part of the city. When Richardson first arrived in the 1820s, Mexico still ruled. And the very first night he anchored his ship here, he danced until dawn at a fiesta with a beautiful daughter of the fort's commander. So Richardson jumped ship and ended up marrying her. And a decade later, he and his young family erected a crude structure on the dusty slope where Grant Street is, right up there. It was more a tent than a house. A ship's foresail stretched over four redwood posts. The town that grew up around his house and business became known as Yerba Buena, after the herb that grew here. Richardson made his living by working with the ships that began coming here to trade. Turn back toward the square we just left. Right over there by the flagpole and the granite marker we stood next to a few minutes ago, that's where the Mexican government built a custom house, an adobe hut to manage the ever-increasing trade with incoming ships. Look at your phone to see what it looked like. Now turn to face downhill. If you look down the street we're on, it's Washington, you can see the bay. Let's start walking in that direction. At first, the Richardsons were the only people on the cove. For the first few years, he and his family cooked on an open fire and slept under their lean-to, looking out at an empty bay. His daughter later recalled, I remember one night a bear put his paw under the tent and carried off a screeching rooster. When you get to the corner, cross and keep going straight towards the bay, down the street we're on, Washington. From Richardson's house, it was only a two-minute walk to the beach. We're walking down the way he would have gone. It was a shallow, curved cove about a mile long with a small bluff above the beach. 
Richardson's son wrote of watching bears and coyotes quarrel over the fish that washed up on the shore. And it wasn't just fish those predators were after. This was still truly the Wild West. A year after Richardson arrived, an American trader built another home in Yerba Buena, right near Richardson's lean-to. One day, an eight-year-old Indian boy was snatched from his yard by a mountain lion and never seen again. The bay started about one block from here. Imagine the silence of the cove as we approach. No ships, because it was too shallow. No people around. A few dead fish where the gutter is now. A few clamshells strewn across the sand. Now we're coming up to the big intersection we started at. You're going to cross the biggest street, Columbus, to that little triangle with a tree growing from a patch of grass. Go ahead and do that when you have the light. And next, you'll cross the short crosswalk to the left, toward the Scientology building that we passed before. So make sure you cross Columbus, the big street, then take the little crosswalk to your left, landing in front of the Scientology building. With the Scientology building to your left this time, head up Montgomery Street. We've arrived at the next chapter in our history. We're in the 1840s now, my favorite time in the history of San Francisco. And the one-horse hamlet of Yerba Buena has become a funky little town. We're still under Mexican rule, but now a couple of dozen British and American adventurers and a few wandering Europeans have somehow washed up on this extremely remote shore. Many of them have married local Hispanic girls. Yerba Buena was one of the few places in the United States where wholesale race mixing went on. In fact, a newspaper editor called the young town a half-breed babe. Stop for a second next to this little line of mailboxes on the corner and picture the place. Back then, where the gutter here starts, there was a little saltwater lagoon that flowed along this cross street. So let's imagine the curb ahead of us is the bank of the lagoon. To get out to the pier, your babuenans had to roll up their pants or lift their dresses and wade across it. So an early mayor decided to build the town's first civic improvement, a wooden footbridge over the lagoon, right here between this corner and the brick building across the street with a clock on it. Come on, let's walk over the bridge now, from the mailboxes to the clock. When the bridge was completed, 30 people, practically the entire population of the town, came out to jump up and down on the little bridge. When you get over the bridge, cross again to your right toward the stately brick building with a gray pillar on the corner. So you'll cross Montgomery and wait at the gray pillar. We'll stay here a moment while we say goodbye to Yerba Buena and enter the second half of the 1800s. Here's the context. The Americans had won their war with Mexico and raised their flag here. They named the town San Francisco. But as we've said, that didn't change much. What did was this. In 1848, a guy in the California foothills saw something that literally put San Francisco on the map. Here's a clue. 
Anyone wearing a wedding ring or a chain around their neck? Made of gold, as in the gold rush. Look out of the street we just crossed. In May of 1848, a shrewd Mormon newcomer walked down Montgomery Street holding high in the air a quinine bottle full of gold dust and crying out, Gold! Gold from the American River! What a historian called the shout heard round the world caused the biggest mass migration in U.S. history. And in the fabled year of 1849, a staggering 80,000 men poured into California, more than half of them in their 20s. They gave birth to San Francisco, an instant city. You can look at your phone to see what this area looked like back then. So look down this street toward the bay, down Jackson. You see these swanky art galleries along these blocks? Well, go back in time. During the gold rush, the buildings here look onto a sea of mud. Ships from everywhere are anchoring in the bay, and people are pouring in. But there's no pavement, no sidewalk. Take one careful step forward, and imagine not just your foot, but half your leg sinks into the mud, and the muck grips your leg so tightly that when you try to extricate it, you pull your boot off. Keep walking slowly and gingerly down Jackson. One group of 49ers sank so deeply into the mud, they had to turn back and sleep on their ship. An entire mule team simply vanished into the mud. Someone posted a sign that read, this street is impassable, not even jackassable. At the same time, the new city was plagued by fires. Look to your left. You see a two-story red brick building? It's 472 Jackson. If you waded through the mud too fast, just back up and find it. I'll take a look up at the second floor. You see the iron shutters on its upper windows? Most of the houses here were made of wood, and the fires consumed everything. So those iron shutters were introduced as a safety measure. Unfortunately, the shutters swelled in the heat, sometimes trapping people inside. Some people tried living in prefabricated iron houses, which were supposed to be fireproof. But the houses turned into 2,000-degree ovens. People were literally melted into a puddle. Continue down the muddy street. There was no paving material or wood available, so the 49ers tossed anything they could get their hands on into the streets as landfill. Imagine you're stepping on garbage, salt, beef, cases of tobacco even three barrels of revolvers. And you might also see the strangest thing of all, hundreds of shirts lying on the ground. Perfectly good shirts, just dirty. San Francisco had become the most insanely expensive city in U.S. history, and suddenly it was more costly to get your shirt laundered than it was to buy a new one. 
So continue down Jackson past the art galleries. You see that little alley we're passing on the left? Let's turn there. It's called Balance. There are almost 50 Gold Rush-era ships buried under San Francisco streets. One of them, the Balance, gave its name to the tiny alley we're walking on. Turn right when you reach the end of the alley. It's called Gold Street, and keep walking. Some ships were simply abandoned in the rush for gold. Others were sunk on purpose to help fill in the bay. So beneath your feet still today are boxes of cargo, decaying ship's masts, anchors. Even cases of old French champagne have been discovered. Turn left at this next corner with the arched brick windows. One of the unique things about the instant city was the wild diversity of its population. It was said that every country in the world was represented by at least one prostitute. In the part of town we're entering now, you'd want to keep a close eye on your wallet and possibly certain sensitive parts of your anatomy. In 1849, large numbers of Australian convicts made their way to San Francisco. This was known as Sydney Town, filled with thugs, cons, and blousy prostitutes masquerading as hotel keepers. Look out for that Sheila in the low-cut dress coming out the door on your left and sticking her ample bosom in your face. A half hour of fun with her will end up with you lying unconscious in an alley, drugged liquor in your bloodstream, and all your money gone. Okay, um, when you get to the next corner, cross the street, it's Pacific Street, and take a left on the far side of the street. Now we're approaching the neighborhood known as the Barbary Coast, the world's most infamous vice district since uh, Sodom and Gomorrah closed down. Keep walking up this street. We're heading to Osgood Alley. It's 1875, and the madness of the Barbary Coast is at its height. This stretch of Pacific was a raucous, brightly lit street lined with dozens of bars, nightclubs, and brothels. Barkers grab your lapels and try to lure you inside. Drunks fly out of all the swinging doors we pass. Stop when you get to the little alley between two handsome red brick buildings. It's called Osgood Alley. So stop here for a moment and just imagine. Pacific was called Terrific Street, a short stretch of unbelievable depravity. You might watch a woman having sex with an animal. Some hookers let Johns watch the guys in line ahead of them. A man named Dirty Tom McAleer, who claimed he hadn't bathed for ten years, would, for a small coin, eat literally anything you gave him. Small wonder that a minister proclaimed San Francisco the very citadel of his satanic majesty. Let's keep walking up Pacific to the next big cross street. See this four-story brick building to your right? 
There was a Chinese cigar factory upstairs. Other American cities had red light districts, too. But none were as sordid as the Barbary Coast in San Francisco. The reason? In part, it was the anarchy of the gold rush and the overabundance of young men without their families. Then there was San Francisco's remoteness and its weak and corrupt government. But what I think was the most important thing is that the city kind of liked it. San Francisco had a love-hate relationship with its sinful side that continues to this day. Keep walking and cross the next street, that's Montgomery, toward the building with a roof that looks like stairs. We'll stay on Pacific, or Terrific, Street for another block. You can find echoes of the raucous Barbary Coast throughout every period of San Francisco history since. Notice those two odd metal pillars when you get across Montgomery? During World War II, they marked the entrance to a block of neon lights and sleazy clubs called the International Settlement. It aimed to rekindle the craziness of the Barbary Coast. We'll continue past the pillars. As we hit this next block, put on your dancing shoes. In addition to its all-you-can-eat menu of sex, in its later incarnations, Terrific Street also offered some of the hottest music being played anywhere in America. By the 1920s, these blocks of San Francisco were home to some of the first and finest jazz musicians in the country. In fact, the word jazz was first used here. And because the Barbary Coast was considered a protected area of vice, a zone of misrule, race mixing was tolerated here. So up here on the right, you see that brick building that's just past the little yellow one? It's a design firm, and it says 550 sideways on the glass door. That's where a joint called the So Different Club once stood. Stop here for a second next to the glass and imagine the scene inside. The So Different was black-owned with a first-rate black jazz band. Here, white men could dance with black women. There were so many shootouts at the So Different that the owners of the dive next door had to line their wall with sheet metal to protect the bartender from stray bullets. Famous ragtime dances like the turkey trot were invented here. Try it. Stand with your feet well apart and take four hopping steps to the left. Then rise onto the ball of your foot and drop back on the heel. But a lot faster than that. Keep going. After it was denounced by the Vatican as being too suggestive, the turkey trot became wildly popular. Okay, now let's carefully cross to the other side of the street we've been walking on, to that building with the white arches. This art supplies store was the old Hippodrome Dance Hall. This is one of the only buildings on the street that still evokes the Barbary Coast. If you look on the sides of the entrance, you'll see a bas-relief of female nudes. The original reliefs showed lecherous satyrs chasing nymphs. These are tamer, but they give at least a taste of the old hippodrome. If it's open, walk inside the store. 
picture a sawdust-covered floor and a piano player pounding the 88 so hard he had to tape his fingers. The ceiling here evokes the right spirit, and there's a secret passageway that leads to subterranean brothels. Let's go back out of the store and walk to the left, continuing all the way to the end of the block we've been traveling down. The Barbary Coast ended at Columbus. And by the way, we're going to pass by the bog and the mammoth remains again. Don't get out of your time machine here. At the corner, we're going to turn right. We're going to cross toward the cafe there called The Station. Keep the cafe to your right and head uphill. You'll see a red awning that says Secrets Adult Boutique up ahead. As we climb up this hill, you'll see some flesh pots around here. They're just the tame grandchildren of the Barbary Coast. Though if you're a guy, you may get invited to come inside along the way. We're walking up Kearney. While you hike this little hill, look over to the other side of the street. That brown awning is the Hustler Club. And the empty storefront next to that was a peep joint called the Lusty Lady, where the patrons would put a quarter in a slot to ogle naked girls. The Lusty Lady boasted that it was the world's only unionized, worker-owned peep show co-op. This hyper-San Francisco set of virtues should have entitled it to a city subsidy, if not historical landmark status. Alas, the lusty lady went out of business in 2013. Keep going up the hill to Broadway. We're going to turn left. So, cross here toward the red Chinese restaurant to your left and continue past it, halfway down the next block of Broadway. During the gold rush, the wild young city was plagued by crime. That wasn't surprising. There were a lot of bad guys in town. The lawyers and judges were often corrupt or incompetent, and the police force was practically non-existent. See that building on the other side of Broadway with a red awning and a sign for the Beat Museum? We'll talk about the Beats later. Right now, imagine the building that used to stand there. It was San Francisco's first jail. That jail played a leading role in what was one of the most controversial episodes in San Francisco history, the Vigilante Movement. Stop directly under the derriere of that naked lady up there, the Taste to Paradise sign, and look across the street to where the Broadway jail used to be. Okay, stop here for a moment. People got fed up with the lawlessness of the time. And in 1856, when two particularly notorious murders took place, and the culprits were thrown into jail right there where the Beat Museum is now, San Franciscans decided to take matters into their own hands. Imagine the scene. Thousands of citizens marching in military formation up here to Broadway in dead silence. They gathered right where we're standing now, shoulder to shoulder with us. They rolled out a cannon with maybe a six-foot-long barrel and aimed it right across the street of that jailhouse door and ordered the sheriff to hand over his prisoners. Not surprisingly, he complied. It was the largest vigilante movement in U.S. history. Want to see? Peek at your phone. 
The prisoners were hanged a few days later. Okay, let's continue walking to the corner of the big intersection. That's Columbus again. We're going to turn right and follow it up. But as we walk along this last stretch of Broadway, notice the feeble strip club remnants of what was once the vice capital of the Western world. The Condor, the club we're crossing toward, was the home of the very first topless act. Uh, when you've got a walk sign, cross toward the Condor, to your right. Once you've crossed Broadway, continue up Columbus, passing the Condor to your right. In the next part of our tour, we'll stop at a traditional Italian deli, and we'll travel through another century. This next century is a lot more subdued than the one we just left. It's not so lawless and extreme. The city of San Francisco had sowed its wild oats. It was no longer a frontier town. It got a real police force. And even though government was often still corrupt, at least it functioned. And the city kept growing. Continue across this next street, Grant Avenue. You'll pass a liquor store on your right. But as you cross, look up the street you're crossing. On the right side, there's a saloon with a faded red and yellow facade. You can bid farewell to the brawling 19th century by waving goodbye to that saloon. It's the oldest one in San Francisco. Keep walking up Columbus, the biggest street. By 1890, San Francisco was the eighth largest city in the U.S. It had a population of 300,000. And as it matured, the lone rangers and gold diggers of its mad youth were replaced by prosperous businessmen and hard-working laborers and families. The prostitutes and gamblers still strutted their stuff, but they were outnumbered by respectable citizens. San Francisco was growing up. Walk up to the next corner, right up to the old 7-Up sign, but don't cross toward the church. Instead, turn left across Columbus. The best place to start the 20th century is one of the great Italian delis of San Francisco, Molinari's. Just cross Columbus. It's on the opposite corner. Stop in front of Molinari's deli on the corner before you go inside. Just take a moment to admire the display. Tuna from Sicily, homemade ravioli, extra virgin olive oil from Lucca, Genovese pesto, yards of succulent salami, lambrusco, orvieto. And that's just the stuff in the window. This place opened up in 1896, and it's one of the few delis of its kind left in this town. It's a great place to get a sandwich or snack, we're heading up to the top of Telegraph Hill. It's an unbeatable spot for a picnic. So go on in and grab a number if it's busy. Try the Copa sandwich with provolone or the Molinari special. Try everything. And be sure to talk to the guys who work here. The wisecracks are free. There are also some great old photos of the place hanging from a beam in the back. I'll wait for you out here. Just press pause and take out your earbuds, and when you come out, don't forget to press play again. Buon appetito! I hope you're well laden with provisions. Let's cross back over Columbus the way we came, toward Buster's.
We're going to pass Buster's to our right, past the motorcycle parking, and then we're just going to go a short block on this street. It's Vallejo. Stop when you get to Cafe Trieste. For more than a century, the neighborhood we're about to walk through was the beating heart of the most remarkable Italian community in America. In many ways, the Italians were an exception to the free-spirited ethos we've been tracing through San Francisco streets. They didn't reinvent themselves here, but they did reinvent this wondrous part of San Francisco in their own image. When you get to the corner here by the Cafe Trieste, turn left and cross the street. We're going to go up Grand, the less steep of these two streets. So if you'd been in North Beach in its heyday, you could have shopped at 20 Molinari-style groceries on this street alone. Golden strands of spaghetti and dried peppers hung in the windows of these stores. Instead of the laundromat and the Chinese barber, you'd see fruit and vegetable peddlers wandering the streets, making house calls. You'd buy paper sacks of roast pumpkin seeds and eat them as you haggled with vendors who might be driving a horse-drawn carriage. During my first few years in San Francisco, I rented an apartment on Telegraph Hill. I was right out of college and I felt like I'd died and gone to boho heaven. To an aspiring writer, North Beach was mythical turf and its Italianness made it irresistible to a starry-eyed young romantic. The alleys, the steep streets, the coffee houses where big thoughts were ground along with the espresso. Who needed Paris in the 1920s when you had Upper Grant and Washington Square? I still love the neighborhood. That's why I moved back here a few years ago. You see Green Street? Let's cross it, then turn right and begin climbing up green on the far side. Walk up just a few dozen feet. We're heading to the Barbary Coast Bar. A few Italians settled here as early as the gold rush, but most came a few decades later. Rents were low in this neighborhood and they started moving in, next to the Chileans and Spanish. Old-time Italians used to complain about the incessant twanging of the Spanish guitars. Stop under the black Barbary Coast Bar awning. It's a bar and restaurant now. If it's open, you can check out the cool interior. But at the turn of the century, and for many decades after, it was an old spaghetti factory. You see, everything the Italians had in Italy, they brought here to North Beach. So by 1917, there were no fewer than 19 macaroni ravioli factories in this neighborhood. 33 Italian-language newspapers were published here. Accordions were manufactured here. Let's continue up this street, Green Street. You may have noticed that so far we've managed to escape San Francisco's famous hills. Well, the vertical part of the tour starts now. Keep walking up. As we go, look for the slender alleyways that run like veins through this neighborhood. Early in the 20th century, a singular historic moment changed San Francisco forever. This time, unlike the gold rush, it was a natural disaster. At 5.12 a.m. on an April morning in 1906, a huge earthquake hit San Francisco. 
Hundreds of people were crushed to death in the first few minutes. The real devastation was caused by the fires that started afterwards. North Beach almost escaped unscathed. Take a break, turn around, and look behind you over there at Russian Hill. On the third day after the quake, when the fire was almost contained, the demolition of a building way over that way started a new blaze. Winds in San Francisco almost always come from the west, so if you were standing here then, you would have seen huge flames raging toward you. People ran for their lives to the waterfront and were rescued by a flotilla of boats. The fire destroyed everything in its path, except a few houses on Telegraph Hill, some of which we'll see. Let's keep walking up the street. Sorry about the hill. The fire not only destroyed San Francisco, it sobered it up a bit, too. A newspaper article three days after the destruction declared, The old San Francisco is dead. The gayest, lightest-hearted, most pleasure-loving city of the Western continent, and in many ways its most interesting and romantic, is a horde of refugees living among ruins. It may rebuild, it probably will, but those who have known that peculiar city by the Golden Gate have caught its flavor of the Arabian Nights, feel that it can never be the same. The next big cross street is Kearney. Cross and keep going up. Despite the damage, San Franciscans remain proud of their heap of ashes. They called it their damnedest fine ruins. Once you've crossed Kearney, and you're passing someone's lovely potted plants, look across the street to your right. You see that third building up, the gray one with the beautiful rounded bay windows and the sign that says Reno on the wall under the main arch? After the fire burned almost every building you could see from here, an enterprising Italian widow built the first apartment house on Telegraph Hill here. She did it in a really interesting way. She owned the lot to the left of Reno, and she charmed the city government into letting her build directly over the alley, over that arch. Right here at Little Windsor Place on your left, rest for a moment so you can appreciate how beautifully the alley frames Coit Tower. At nine and a half feet wide, this is the second narrowest alley on the hill. Okay, so we're going to keep walking over the crest of the hill to the black house on the left. It's the only black house around. You'll see it. That house was owned by an Italian janitor named Joe. And like most of the Italians in the neighborhood, Joe made his own wine. And during Prohibition, he even had a secret joint in the back of his house that he called Joe's Wine Cellar. A lot of the Italians made wine in their basements during Prohibition. They weren't drunks. They just followed their own rules up here on the hill. Okay, there's the Black House, 310 Green. That's Joe's. Let's hang out here for a minute before we turn around. Joe's was a neighborhood favorite. People would come here to play cards and drink wine. Someone wrote a poem. I go to this place that nobody knows, that only goes by the name of Joe's. 
It's only a cellar at the foot of some stairs. One big table and a few odd chairs. A red oil cloth for a table spread. And great big barrels of Dago Red. One day, the place was raided. They axed Joe's barrels of wine, and a red sea flowed down Green Street, right under your feet, toward the bay. Okay, now let's turn around and walk back just a little ways the way we came. Right after the crest, we're going to turn right onto the little street called Castle. Castle Street, where you're turning right, used to be called Garibaldi Street, after the hero of Italian independence. And nearly every house on Garibaldi Street had a wine press in the basement. They bought grapes down at the base of the hill from refrigerated train cars called reefer cars, and then they'd lug the crates up the hill. One family would make 200 gallons of wine or so in a season. It was a hearty brew. Someone observed that it was potent enough to make one long for whiskey as a light beverage. It's hard to imagine how countrified it was up here. A woman known as the Goat Lady walked her herd down this street and up to the vacant lot on top of Telegraph Hill. Little Italy was deeply ingrown. Italians didn't just marry Italians, that practically went without saying. They married people from their own village. Okay, we're going to turn right at the corner. That's Union Street. Pass the laundromat to your right and keep walking uphill. We're going to head up to what used to be the most storied grocery store, not just in Telegraph Hill, but in all of San Francisco. The late lamented Speedies. By the way, stocking the shelves up there in the days before delivery trucks should have been an Olympic sport. Have you turned up Union Street? Is it at least a little hard walking up this hill? And that's without carrying a 50-pound sack of potatoes. Deliveries could only be made to the bottom of the hill because draft horses couldn't climb the steep last block to the store. So Speedy and his workers had to carry everything up themselves. This storefront up here in the corner now looks nothing like Speedy's. But go ahead and peer in and imagine Speedy in there stocking the shelves. You might even spot an old photograph on the wall. Speedy's real name was Achilles Spediacci. His community spirit was a big part of what made the hill so special. Yet during World War II, soldiers coming home on leave would telegraph him to turn on the heat in their homes and stock their refrigerators. Speedy gave credit to starving bohemian artists, even though he knew they would never pay. Take a look at your phone to see a photo of the store. It stayed open until 2008. So you want to see some of the oldest houses in San Francisco? The few that remained standing after the earthquake and fire destroyed everything? Turn towards the bay. You see that beige building across the street with the pink trim next to the no outlet sign? That one was built before the earthquake and saved from the fire. Cross toward it and continue down past that sign. You're going down Union, passing that house to the right and continuing toward the bay. We're headed to one of the most beautiful and explosive streets in San Francisco. 
Stay to the right of the divider that says dead end as you walk down Union. Look to your right and you see the gray house with the beautiful balconies? That's another pre-earthquake building. It was built by an Irish grocer. We've been walking through this staid neighborhood full of respectable Italian families, grocers. Maybe you're starting to miss our old friends, the drunken rogues who hogged the stage for the first part of our tour. Don't worry, they're about to barge back into our story with a vengeance. Walk all the way down, staying to the right of the divider, and turn right when you can't go any further. Uh, don't worry, we're going to look at the view later. Yeah, we're going to turn right on Calhoun Street. Keep walking almost to the end of it. We're going to stop and look out toward the water at the last lamppost with the no parking sign on the retaining wall. All right. So, enter the Gray Brothers, two of the greatest villains in San Francisco history. The Gray Brothers sold rocks. They had a quarry. The way they made their living was to light sticks of dynamite and blast off huge chunks of rock. In fact, they sold huge chunks of the hill we're standing on. Their most lucrative site was right at the bottom of this cliff, just on the other side of this cement retaining wall. Lean over the retaining wall by that last no-parking sign before the end of Calhoun and look down at that near-vertical precipice. This is not a natural cliff. For almost 20 years, the Gray Brothers kept blowing up huge chunks of Telegraph Hill and blowing up houses along with it. These guys cared more about the rocks at the bottom of this hill than they did about the working-class families who were living on top of it. Walk all the way to the dead end and peer around the trellis. You used to be able to walk on a little footpath from here that led down to the next street, but that footpath, along with several houses and much of the cliff, came crashing down in a blast. If you'd lived here, you might have woken up one morning to the sound of an explosion only to find your kitchen sliding down the hill, possibly with you in it. When San Francisco residents tried to stand up to the brothers and save their neighborhood, one of them argued that if this unsightly hill were cut down, residents on the east side of Russian Hill would have a magnificent marine view they do not now enjoy. Uh, take a look at your phone to see the Gray Brothers quarry. Thankfully, today this retaining wall is doing an excellent job of keeping us alive. So let's stay here for a minute to talk about where we'd be if we did slide down. The waterfront. Look out there to the line of finger piers sticking out into the bay. While the rogues were blasting on the hill and the Italians were stomping on grapes in their basements, the economic life of the city was still dominated by the water. San Francisco was one of America's great port cities. As late as the 1950s, about a third of its population worked in waterfront-related jobs. From up here, you could smell the exotic odors of the cargoes being unloaded. Copra, dried coconut meat. Coffee, fruit. The Beltline train chugged along down below, picking it all up for delivery to local warehouses or bigger train lines. 
See that beautiful old gray clock tower near the end of the Bay Bridge? That's the ferry building. Before the bridges were built, that was the city's front door. In 1913, 60,000 commuters came to work each day by ferry. Ships of the world tied up along what was called the city front, and from up here, you'd see something like an anthill of longshoremen moving cargo on and off ships. If you'd been here during the spring of 1934, you'd have seen that anthill take a different shape. Picket lines and armed men along the piers. San Francisco was a working man's town, but it was also a capitalist's town. And the two sides were always fighting. When the longshoremen got fed up with the rigged hiring system, they went on strike up and down the whole West Coast. And right down there, on what became known as Bloody Thursday, the San Francisco police shot three protesting workers. Two of them died. And soon, most of San Francisco was on strike in solidarity. It was a watershed moment for the longshoremen. Twenty-five years later, the advent of container ships effectively killed San Francisco as a working port. The ships went to Oakland, Seattle, and other ports. And these piers were turned over to non-profits, high-tech firms, and tourists. Let's walk back up toward where we came from. This is really one of my favorite all-time streets in San Francisco, and if I could live in any house in the city, I think I might choose that one that's set in there on the left, just past that low white garage. It's the faded yellow one with the widow's walk, Nine Calhoun. It somehow survived the earthquake, the fire, and even the Gray Brothers blasts, and it's an absolutely amazing house. up ahead of the corner, where now you see that big modern apartment building, there used to be a collection of cottages there known as Loeffler's Compound. Now, that was where a motley collection of bohemian artists and ne'er-do-wells lived and threw legendary parties in the 1930s. Turn left and walk back up the hill. There was always a hard-partying, more rebellious element on the hill. Writers and artists came here for the views, the cheap rent, and the good food and wine. Up here at the corner, next to that beige and pink pre-earthquake house, turn right now, instead of crossing back to Speedy's. Cross toward the building with brown shingles on the opposite corner, and stop there for a moment. That brown shingled house there is the site of what was once the famous... Dead Fish Cafe. A lively and mysterious blonde opened it in 1933. She painted the cafe's walls a deep red and black and hired a doorman dressed as a Cossack. Stand on the corner in front of it and look up at the tower on the hill. Late one night, this eccentric lady rushed drunkenly out and fired her 22 caliber revolver toward that tower. That's Koi Tower, and it had just been built. When the cops arrived to arrest her, she told them, I just don't like the thing. Her lawyer said she should have used a howitzer. Let's walk down this street. It's Montgomery, staying to the right of the lush divider. So during the 1920s and 1930s, these few blocks were the cultural crossroads of Telegraph Hill. 
The Bohemians wrote, painted, and partied here. The port workers rested their weary bodies in rented rooms. And the Italians rose at the crack of dawn to stock their grocery stores. There were nine or ten grocers on this street. There's a wonderful old photo of a little girl wandering across the dirt road to a store. Stop for a second and look at your phone to see it. She looks like she's three years old. Keep walking. If you lived here and your livelihood was the port, you might have planned your day by the sound of ship's whistles or horns. Being able to see and hear whatever was on the bay was a big advantage here. Longshoremen and their wives and children would watch and listen for ships arriving, waiting to report for duty or for their husbands or dads to return. One resident stevedore could identify the distinct whistle of Pacific Coast Steamship Company. When he heard it, it meant he had work. Walk just a little ways further down Montgomery. You're going to see a steep staircase that's heading down to the right. That's the Filbert Steps. They're just there where you see the blue and red police telephone box. But don't go down the steps. We're going to go up instead. We're going to head to Coit Tower now. Cross the street and go up the steps across from you and stop when you get to the top. Before you leave the median, just to the top of this little staircase, turn around and look behind you at the bas reliefs on the Art Deco building behind us. They celebrate the opening of the Bay Bridge in 1936. The Bay Bridge spelled the end for the great ferry fleets that until then had carried so many hundreds of thousands of commuters into San Francisco. Carefully walk across the street to the next staircase up and check out the gardens along the way. These were originally planted 50 years ago by a neighborhood gardener, and they're amazing. They've been lovingly tended by Hill residents ever since. Climbing the steps in the middle of the gardens. This side of the hill was known as the twilight side because it gets dark fast when the sun sets. More of the Irish lived over here on the twilight side. This was the poorer side. And the Italians lived on the other side, the sunny side. Each group had gangs of young men that would fight each other. Members of one of the Irish gangs would actually hike up to the higher ground and roll boulders down upon their enemies on the other side. They called themselves, aptly enough, the Rock Rollers. So this was the poor side of the hill. But look at the houses here along this path. The average price of a house on Telegraph Hill is $6 million. It's strange to think that for so many years, this was one of the cheapest places to live in San Francisco. At certain times of year, as you walk along here, the gardens along these stairs just smell like perfume. Are the flowers fragrant right now? To the top of the steps, continue up the walkway, and you stay to your left when you reach the sidewalk. When you get to the top of the steps, turn left and continue up the narrow road. You'll be going slightly uphill. You should be reaching a small two-lane road. Head left to that chain-link fence overlooking a vacant lot. 
So here we are. This is really one of the greatest views of San Francisco. Right here next to the stop sign, looking out over this vacant lot. Let your gaze pan from left to right, from Knob Hill over to the Golden Gate Bridge. This curving street, Telegraph Hill Boulevard, was designed in the 20s by a famous architect who wanted to make San Francisco into Paris with hills. And its construction marked the beginning of the end of the old, cheap, bohemian Telegraph Hill. Cars began driving up to the summit. The first swanky apartment house was built on the boulevard. The ancient wooden cottages of the working class, with bad plumbing and single-burner stoves, were torn down. There are just a couple of them left. One is right down these steps on the left. You see it? The one with the solar panels on the roof. By the 30s, rents were beginning to rise on the hill. In 1936, the New York Times ran the headline, San Francisco's historic bohemian quarter succumbs to the forces of economics and modernism. Watch for cars, and let's carefully cross Telegraph Hill Boulevard at the crosswalk and go up the stairs toward Court Tower. Okay, you want to know how Telegraph Hill got its name? The view from here explains it. During the gold rush days, this view was indispensable. The traders and stock exchanges down in the financial district needed to know what ships were coming through the Golden Gate and when. So in 1850, a semaphore was installed atop the hill. That's a mechanical signal tower with movable arms. A lookout would position its wooden arms like the hands of a clock to signal what kind of ships were arriving. It was called the Marine Telegraph, hence Telegraph Hill. Take a break. You can see it on your phone. Turn up the first steps you get to on the right. We'll head to the middle of the lawn to the right of the tower. You'll get a break on the grass up there. We've made it. Find a spot to rest. There's no more hills to climb. Pick a place to relax on the grass or on the low brick wall. Walk around, look at the magnificent views of downtown and the bridge. The world-famous building next to us was built in 1933. An eccentric heiress named Lily Hitchcock Coit left money to build a monument when she died. Now there was a San Francisco character. She wore pants and loved firemen. She would cheer them on when they fought fires. Okay, are you hungry? I'm hoping you have a sandwich from Molinari's or something to refuel. Relax here, go check out the views until you're ready to finish up our detour. I promise to be waiting right here for you inside this machine when you're done. Go ahead and press pause now, and you'll press play again somewhere in this area when you're ready to go. Welcome back. Let's go circle the tower. If you're not there already, walk from the grass up to the walkway, and with the tower to your right, begin circling it clockwise. As we walk around it, look through the windows at the extraordinary murals inside. You can take your time and go inside and see them better after we circle the place. It can be super crowded in there. 
These murals were the very first pieces of art to be funded by the new Federal Public Works of Art program. Uh, you've heard of the WPA. This was the artistic equivalent of that, and it was part of the FDR administration's effort to provide work for artists during the Great Depression. Every artist who worked on the murals received the princely fee of $94 a month. They're a wonderful panorama of California life, and a lot of them are themselves a celebration of labor. Many feature subversive left-wing touches, like a portrait of a man taking down a copy of Karl Marx's Das Kapital from a library shelf. This was a celebration of left-wing radicalism by a lot of artists who were very left-wing. There's always been a strong strain of radicalism in this neighborhood, including among the Italians, that continues to this day. I love these murals. If you haven't already gone inside to look more closely at them, do. And take a good look at my favorite, the huge fresco, showing a crowded downtown street scene. You check out the guy being robbed at gunpoint and the automobile crash and the illogical way that the landscape builds up and still captures San Francisco. It captures the muscular glamour and the whimsy of the city in the 1930s. When you're done looking, meet me at the top of the stairs by the grassy area where we were a few minutes ago. We're going to head back down the stairs and into the heart of North Beach to finish our 25 blocks of history. I promise it's all downhill from here. Ready? Let's walk back down the stairs toward the city, back toward the stop sign and the empty lot we passed on the way up here. You'll be angling to the left as you go down. And we're going to say goodbye to the 1930s and move into the next great era of San Francisco, World War II. The city's a lot better known for peace signs and make love, not war than it is for war. But World War II had a major impact here. For one, there was a huge naval shipyard which employed 18,000 people and brought the first major wave of African Americans to San Francisco. Plus, more than 1.6 million troops shipped off to fight the Japanese from here. Many of the men who first saw San Francisco during the war and fell in love with it when they sailed in under the Golden Gate at the end of the war ended up moving here when they returned to civilian life in the late 40s and 1950s. When you get to the bottom of the same steps we came up, go back across the winding road, Telegraph Hill Boulevard, to the sidewalk across the street by the vacant lot next to the stop sign. Remember how I said there was an Irish side and an Italian side of Telegraph Hill? This time we'll be heading down what used to be the Italian side. So we're going to take the steps that go straight down next to the chain link fence. At the bottom of the stairs cross the street, it's Kearney. I want you to stand on that corner across the street in front of the tan-colored house and look down the hills on either side. All right, so first, take a look down to the right of the house, straight ahead, down this next block of Filbert Street. You'll be looking down the street with the Garfield Elementary School on the right. This is one of the steepest streets in town. And if you look across the valley and up Russian Hill, that stretch of Filbert, Coming down from the summit over there, that top block, 
That's officially the steepest block in town. And here's one more piece of trivia. Turn to your left and look down Kearney to the left of the tan house. At no other intersection in San Francisco do two streets this steep meet. I think that makes this the steepest intersection in town. Okay, before we head down this hill on Filbert, we're going to come up to the 1950s. And during the 50s, after half a century of relative calm and order, San Francisco became once again a destination for rebels. Again, it became a frontier of sorts. The first of the great countercultural waves to crash over North Beach hit. The Beats. Let's head down Filbert, past this tan house to your left. Cross Genoa and keep walking down. The beat poets and writers protested with words and drugs and sex, the increasing sterility of post-war conformist suburbia. San Francisco became the mecca for thousands of black-clad, beret-wearing, bongo-playing youth. They poured into North Beach, looking for freedom, intensity, and kicks. Allen Ginsberg waved the banner in his groundbreaking poem, Howl. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix. See Varennes Street, the little alley to the left? Pull your phone out of your pocket to see a photo of some of the best beat poets hanging out there. Your humble narrator also lives on this alley. If you run into me, buy me a drink. We're going to keep walking down the street we've been on, Filbert. The next little dead-end alley is named after a black poet of the beat generation who took a vow of silence and did not speak again for almost ten years. As a young man here in the 70s, I saw Bob Kaufman and Allen Ginsberg, too, wandering through North Beach. Even at the time, I felt like I'd encountered a link to a legendary era. An alley called Bob Kaufman Place is right here on your left. So when you get to the next corner, the one by the gray and white building, stop. I want to show you something in the ground. At the bottom of these funny steps, the corner of Grant Avenue, look around by your feet and find a bronze hand embedded in the sidewalk. You see that Y there? That's the symbol of the legendary City Lights bookstore and publishing house the place that helped make the Beats famous. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the beloved founder of City Lights Publishing, sold poetry for the masses in paperback, and he became a San Francisco hero and won a major freedom of speech battle when he dared to publish Allen Ginsberg's poem Howl. Um, City Lights Publishing had its very first office in this building here on the corner. And there have been many other poets that lived in this neighborhood. The intersection is called Poet's Corner. Let's cross Grant toward that red garage, then turn left and head down Grant for a block. This neighborhood, and this street in particular, 
attracted not just the beats, but the even bigger and stranger countercultural movement that came next, the hippies. Actually, the beats and the hippies had quite a few things in common. Both rejected what they saw as their era's paint-by-numbers existence. Both were inspired by music, the beats by jazz, the hippies by rock. Both had a distinctive style, black berets and sweaters versus love beads and long hair. But there were important differences, too. The beats modeled themselves after black jazz musicians, hip, deep, alienated. The hippies modeled themselves after Indians, spiritual and incurably optimistic. Stumbling along this block were stoners and acid heads and tie-dye and buckskin. If the conservative old Italian paisans who moved here in the 19th century could have seen Grant Avenue in 1967, they wouldn't have believed their eyes. At the corner up here by the striped awning, turn right. It's Union again. Now we're going to meet the group of outsiders who were probably most associated with San Francisco, gays. Starting as early as the 1930s, North Beach hosted San Francisco's first major gay and lesbian scene. A groundbreaking lesbian bar called Mona's opened in 1934, and soon there were gay bars all over the neighborhood. One of them was right here in this alley to our right, the alley at the end of this long, blonde building, Cadell Place. Step into this alley for a second and look at this gray building on the left side of the alley. It was a bar called The Paper Doll, and it opened in 1949. Imagine the huge Halloween parties overflowing into this tiny street. Drag queens would come all the way from New York to compete. It was a popular attraction on the offbeat tourist circuit. <laughs> Let's keep walking down Union to the next corner. How did all these gay and lesbian bars manage to flourish here in the homophobic 1930s, 40s, and 50s? I think it was the legacy of the Sydney Ducks and the Barbary Coast, and San Francisco's eternal love-hate relationship with its sinful side. It made sense that lesbian bars like the Artists Club, the Beaded Bag, the Shishi Club, and Tommy's 299 were in North Beach. Keep going down Union Street until you get to Stockton, and when you get to Stockton Street, cross right into the park. This is Washington Square. It's one of the oldest parks in San Francisco. This is where our tour ends. I'll leave you here in the park. If you need to, you can find your way back to where we started by crossing Washington Square to Columbus Avenue and following it to the left, all the way down to the Transamerica Pyramid. You'll pass Molinari's city lights and the bones of the mammoths along the way. But for now, I'm going to drop you off at Washington Square Park. Welcome back to the 21st century. I hope I've given you a sense of some of what makes San Francisco so unique. There's its physical beauty, of course, 
which is so jaw-dropping that it still stops me in my tracks half a dozen times a day. Look at Russian Hill up there to the left, or Telegraph Hill behind us. It's magnificent terrain, the refreshing air, the sparkle of the city. But there's also its irrepressible spirit, its openness, the sense that, as the novelist Frank Norris wrote, anything can happen in San Francisco. That intoxicating feeling is made up of a thousand strands. The spiritual Yalamu, the big-hearted Californios, the reckless 49ers, the earthy Italians, the renegade beats, the delirious hippies, the irrepressible gays, and today the driven techies who are flocking here from around the world to put their own stamp on this city. And as inevitably as the sea breeze blows in from the Pacific, another group of dreamers will be drawn to this steep-streeted sandcastle at the end of the continent. And they will write their own chapter to this still unfolding tale. Thanks for walking these streets with me. I hope you can see them as I do, as portals into an enchanted world. Now go out and find San Francisco.